Hi everyone, just a quick announcement before we get into today's episode. Uh, Bitemarks is doing a Q&A, finally. If you want to ask us any questions, feel free to do so with the Curious Cat link, which is in the description. I'd have made an announcement with the Community tab, but uh, YouTube says we're too small to use that feature. If you want to help remedy that, you can subscribe. Anyway, on to the episode. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bitemarks, and joining me today is a very special guest. Say hello, Chad Logic. Hello, it's me, Chad Logic. <laughs> uh, Joy, yeah, uh, I, you know, there are many different kinds of uh, leftists, you know, making different kinds of channels. Uh, Chad Logic is joining us today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Chad Logic? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Chad Logic. Um, I'm a, a partner Twitch streamer. Um, and uh, I, I make uh, Twitch streams about a variety of, of different types of content. I'm particularly interested in uh, technology, uh, social media, um, modern modern day issues around that, things like censorship on social media. Um, and I look at things through a kind of a Marxist lens of analysis. Um, and in, ter- in terms of like pinpointing what my politics are, it's pretty simple. Uh, I think that we should aim to do uh, anything that's possible to improve society and improve the material circumstances of people. And yeah, uh, that's it, essentially. That, that's, a, that's a great answer. Uh, for myself, you know, I whenever people ask me, it's like, uh, well, <laughs> you know, it depends on who's asking. Uh, I, I tend to just uh, broadly identify as just like a leftist. And whatever mm. that means, you know, sometimes that means pushing sock down policies. Sometimes that means, you know, uh, more dem sock policies. Sometimes that might even mean a little bit more, you know, hypothetical uh, you know, anarcho-syndicalist policies, but I don't like to attach myself to labels, and it's good that you don't either, because um, we are the left is a very far cry from being able to materially affect, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, politics. Um, just like uh, you know, in in the United States, uh, Bernie Sanders, great politician, probably you know a really like based guy. He didn't get as far as we'd liked him to. And in the UK, uh, you know, you can probably speak to this Jeremy Corbyn, you, you know, same kind of guy, same kind of like actual real, you know, politician kind of guy also got smeared by the media. Also, you know, now there's a Tory government. Brexit is just a, a trash fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right in that they didn't do as, as well as we wanted to. And there's a number of factors that, that go into that. But certainly like the media representation played a part. Um, and um, to speak to what you're saying about the kind of ideology stuff, the thing for me is this twofold. So the first problem, if you get trapped in a supermarket of ideology, is you know you spend a lot of time kind of focusing on oh, I'm, you're, it's almost like you're picking what political ideology you want to be rather than arriving in it naturally through research and through understanding things, um, and that becomes your identity, right? So you have these people that call themselves the MLs, you know, they've got all the stuff in there, the hammer and sickle, which is fine, you know, if you want to do that's fine, but but that you know often means that you attach your identity to it. And the problem with that is that can lead to you becoming very dogmatic, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and dogmatism, unfortunately, in my experience, dealing with some of these people, is, is it leads them to positions where they just deny facts and deny reality. Yeah. And I'm interested in truth, and I'm interested in what the truth is. I'm interested in what the best ways to improve society are, regardless of any dogmatism. So yeah, that's I'm, why I try and avoid I'm, I'm with you right there. I, I think dogmatism is... a uh, uh... A, a blight, you know, and uh, typically, you know, we, we we tend to look at the right as being very dogmatic because in a lot of ways they kind of are, you know, the way that they think about tra- trans people, the way that they think about uh, LGBT people, climate change, all of that is dogma. Uh, but the left is also capable of falling into, you know, the dogmatic trap. Uh, I always tend to think of it as, you know, uh, what kind of values does a person have? What are their values? How do their mm-hmm. values inform their thinking? You know, do they like democracy? Do they not like democracy? Do they like you know, personal liberty, do they not like personal liberty? How would they, you know, respond to different kinds of situations and what are their values? Because ultimately, uh, I think a lot of people, uh, especially people who are very online, uh, put on ideologies like someone puts on coats, you know? Yes. Uh, it, it, one day, you know, you might be talking to someone and, you know, they're like an ANCOM and then the next time you talk to them, they're like, 
no, anarcho-communism wasn't, you know, the true way is anarcho-primitivism. And like, okay, buddy, that's <laughs> too much internet for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And it arrive, you are right with a straight position. I completely agree about the values thing because, you know, you have situations where, like, say, an ML would be advocating for the death penalty. And, and that's, like, antithetical to my belief system. But then, like, you know, someone that's a sock demo or a liberal... We'll, we'll be actually engaging in a, in a good understanding of how the material affects us all. And I'm like, hang on a sec, like I'm supposed to be on the ML side here, <laughs> but then this liberal is giving me a better like material analysis than the, than the ML. And I'm just like, this just demonstrates that, you know, just because someone's got the right ideology doesn't mean that they're necessarily going oh, yeah, the yeah. values. Uh, the, the line that I always use is that, you know, being a leftist doesn't really fundamentally make you more right. It just really, generally speaking, makes you less wrong. Um, yes, because like if you're a leftist, you probably are less wrong about things like, for example, you know, private prisons. You're probably less wrong about climate change. Uh, but it's entirely possible to be someone who's on the left and also be, I would argue, very wrong about most things to not actually be correct. Yep. And, um, you know, being dogmatic about stuff is now I, I, a lot of people might accuse me or accuse us of like we're taking a centrist position. But there's a difference between being unable to uh, being uh, uh, equivocating two sides when they're clearly different and being able to differentiate between two sides of an argument you know the thing that i always yeah. try to encourage our viewers to do is to think critically about the media that you consume the whole point of the bite marks podcast is to think critically about video games because most people don't most people play call of duty they commit war crimes they don't really think about it and then they listen to you know uh, infinity ward or whoever tell them that oh no call of duty is not political this is not a political game <laughs> And, yeah, uh, and then uh, and then and then they have a non-binary character, and all of a sudden it is a political yeah. game. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so funny to me that uh, Call of Duty is like it suddenly became this whole political thing. But they've depicted war crimes, they've depicted torture, they've depicted you know genocides. They've literally whitewashed uh, U.S. history by like uh, I think it's like in Modern Warfare two or three or Black Ops, one of the games where they're like a war crime that was done by the U.S. They replaced them with the Russians, and no one is like. You know, it's 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 a uh, it's very weird. Yeah. But one of the things that you know your channel and maybe my channel kind of runs into a lot is this problem of something called capitalist realism. Um, why don't you tell the viewers uh, how you think of capitalist realism? What what do you think of when you think of capitalist realism? Okay, so for me, um, the the easiest way I can describe capitalist realism and it's something that even if you're a leftist you probably experience and you probably have issues with i know i definitely do um but it's this idea that um because of the um you know onslaught of neoliberalism that we've experienced in our society over the past few decades um that it's now got to the stage where it's become extremely difficult perhaps even impossible for us to envision society operating without capitalism um, and the best phrase to explain this is it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Hmm. Um, so it means that, you know, the way that I feel that I experience it most is when I'm having a discussion with someone, it's almost like it's it's kind of accepted that capitalism is the best system. So anything we discuss and any um, analysis or any um, solutions have to have that framework taken into account. And if you stray too far out of it, all of a sudden you're being utopian, you're not being realistic. Um, mm. And another point as well on top of that is I find that, you, you know, there'll be a problem in society that isn't perfectly solved by capitalism. But when you propose a solution to it, there's an expectation that you propose a, a perfect solution to that problem. Um, so, so those are the kind of things broadly I think that I think of when when it comes to capitalism. Really. That's a that's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good uh, succinct uh, explanation. <laughs> I was going to you know when I think of capitalist realism, I think of uh, Francis Fukuyama, you know, who wrote that that book, uh, The End of History, a great book, uh, steeped in capitalist realism, you know, in a lot of ways. Because for Fukuyama, you know, the apex of like civil the end of history, what that term means is like we can't society can't develop beyond like a capitalist liberal Western democracy. Granted, that's kind of better than feudalism. <laughs> and uh, coming from a country with a queen, <laughs> I'm sure you can, you know, attest to that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, 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 it is this mind prison in a way where a lot of people don't seem to think that there is anything possible. And, you know, like a game like Fallout is a great example because capitalism brought the world of Fallout to ruin. It, it literally destroyed the world. It, it was, and, <laughs> and even though the world had ended, uh, capitalism still remained. <laughs> what what, yeah, do, what do people do in Fallout? They buy and you know sell commodities. There's 
no no kind of this large scale like in new vegas who's one of the big players a capitalist businessman <laughs> who managed yeah. to survive you know mr house and i think there's a, a big problem with capitalist realism because like you're right a lot of people when you start talking to them about leftism which is why i don't talk about like socialism i don't talk about like communism all of that i try to use very grounded arguments you know i try to talk about like workers rights and just like you know making mm. small incremental improvements because the minute you say socialism someone's brain is going to switch off and uh, <laughs> you know this is this is why we have so many people today who think that like putting women in movies is like a leftist agenda when it's just like yeah maybe just like the most liberal thing you can imagine you know in, in just like a sense of understanding progression you know because uh, you know leftists were about liberation not just representation even though representation is good um, so, uh, with that in mind, uh, I wanted to bring up the, the topic of today's video, which is actually a, a video that you had done, uh, and the, you know, the mm. reason why I reached out to you, and that is namely the capitalist realism of David Jaff or Jaffe, if I, I don't know, <laughs> we're going to use, the, we're no, going no, to I, use, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I tried looking up how to pronounce his name, but I couldn't find an example. So I'm just going to call him David Jaff. If, uh, okay. if, if people, uh, please feel free to correct me in the comments, my intuition might say that's pronounced Jaffe, but, you know, that's that sounds a little bit more ridiculous. So, uh, why don't you tell the, the viewers at home a little bit about the video that you had done? And why sure. you decided um, to cover I, it? So, basically, it was, um, you know, it was cyberpunk fever, right? Mm. Cyberpunk had uh, only recently just come out, and th obviously there was a whole lot of controversy about the game. Um, so, you know, to be really honest with you, I thought if I make a video about cyberpunk, there's a chance it will get a few views because um, people are clicking on that content at the moment. Um, yeah. But also, I think I think cyberpunk was a great example of the failures of the system we exist under in relation to games and how it can cause a complete mess um, and all that other stuff. Um, anyway, I saw like, I, you know, I didn't really know much about David Jaff. Like I knew I knew he was a developer. I knew he was involved with uh, like, like God of War. Um, past that i didn't really know much about him um and i you know i, I didn't think he was like some crazed unhinged right-wing guy i just think he you know i just saw this video and it, and it was about um uh, crunch and i thought okay so i'm interested in this i'm going to watch it i'm going to react to it and i always watch the videos live for the first time i don't do really do any prior research when i watch a video like that um i watch it live and give my honest you know opinions and reaction to it mm-hmm um, so yeah, I, you know, I started, started watching it, and and it clearly it became clear pretty quickly that essentially what David was going to do is just defend the idea of crunch um, <laughs> and put the blame on consumers. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it's and it's like, okay, well, I see where we're going with this. Um, and uh, you know, since releasing the video, I, I've spoken and um, you know to to a few people about it, and um, you know, they've highlighted that David Jaff himself. Uh, you know, when he was de developing, like, say, God of War, he was a proponent of crunch and he is someone that pushed crunch. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it gets to the point where you think, well, there's maybe maybe there's a little bit of bias going on yeah, here. You know, yeah. maybe, it's an ulterior you know. motive. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, 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 yeah, you know, essentially, I kind of push back against the idea mm. That, that you can kind of lay the blame for crunch at the feet of consumers. I think that's like a, a like kind of like trying to pull a get out of jail free card. And what it does is it creates a situation where the focus has moved away from the power structure. Like, you know, consumers have got like some degree of power, but not in the same way that these capitalist structures have like publishers and developers, you know, like they're the true power when we're talking about these things. So for me, I'd rather focus on that than worrying so much about the consumers, mm. you know. And and we will definitely get into that. So, uh, just to give the the viewers some background, so David Jaff uh, is a video game designer who is most regarded for his work on the Twisted Metal franchise, and I think the first God of War. Um, when he you know he doesn't do that anymore. He's I think basically left the industry. He's now a YouTuber and streamer. Um, you know who isn't these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not not that YouTube makes it easy to um, to do that, but uh, uh, so it's it, but Jaffe has Jaff has an interesting career uh, because after he finished do that work on Twisted Metal and God of War, um, he left to form uh, something his own game company. Right, I think a lot of people who are in the industry who maybe work for like your EAs or Ubisofts, those guys, they're probably like, you know what, I'm just doing this to you know. A cash a paycheck i actually just you know want to make my own games so he did that uh, he formed something which i would argue is a 
not a very good name <laughs> for a company. He called it the Bartlett Jones Supernatural Detective Agency. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, and you'll never. You, can you guess what kind of game they made? What was their first and only game? Um, I, I, I've got no idea based on that name. They, like, Jesus. Yeah, it's a wild, it's this crazy name. Uh, it turns out he made like a arena-based shooter. <laughs> uh, so his first and only game, uh, Drawn to Death, is a uh, kind of an interesting game. It was a shooter game, but based around like you know, mechanics of, like, uh, teenagers, a lot of teenage culture, a lot of, like, arena manipulation, you know, like, it, it's called Drawn to Death, you know, because a lot of it is, like, oh, you're some teens, you know, in, like, an imaginary world, you can, like, manipulate the environment, scribble on notebooks, and that becomes, like, a, a real thing. I've never actually played it, you can't play it now, because it was a, a team-based uh, shooter of sorts, uh, you know, and, well, I'm just going to read some reviews from some uh, audiences and we can kind of get a sense of kind of what happened here so ign gave it a four out of ten and they called it a mean-spirited misguided mess yeah <laughs> uh, oh, not, dear. yeah not 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 off to a good start uh in contrast uh, an, another company called push square said it was eight out of ten they called the presentation very juvenile but underneath apparently was a very nice interesting concept for a shooter uh i think the worst part about this whole thing is that it got runner up to worst game uh, that we played, uh, which was uh, twenty in in twenty seventeen, uh, the the company Giant Bomb, they gave them the sec basically the second worst game that they played. So yeah, the game kind of tanked uh, big time, and uh, the studio folded. So <laughs> oh, I, I think you know I I think uh, I I do want to comment that I tried to go look because you mentioned earlier that uh, you spoke to some people and they intimated that uh, Jaff Jaff had you know, a crunch forward mentality. I tried to go and look for, like, what are people saying about, you know, the Bartlett Jones Supernatural Detective Agency, except other than the fact that it has one of the worst names for a game studio I can imagine. <laughs> when I was looking it up, actually, I thought that was the game that they had made. I thought, oh, they're make that's the game, you know? The studio is called, like, you know, Dice Roll or something. No, that's... Anyway... So I looked it up on Glossdoor. It only had one review from a former employee. And um, yeah, you know, pros. It is creativity and results orientated. The boss has, quote, balls and imagination. <laughs> whatever that, you know, whatever that means. And the con was just that, oh, you know, the guy was complaining about the gaming audience itself. I think that really is very, it speaks a lot to like, you know, this idea here where it's like gamers just want the same shooters over and over again. It's hard to survive in a business when you're too focused on art and imagination. Uh, and then he's lamenting that. And I think, yeah, you know, it, it really, no wonder, you know, Jaff has such a individualistic, you know, perspective about this whole thing. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to needlessly speculate, but I do definitely think that, his experiences in the industry where he was an insider to very successful games and then he tried to you know make his own games and it turned out that actually you know the free market of I, the free marketplace is actually you know a lot more complicated and when his game studio went under uh, i think that maybe might have made him a bit of a cynic as to because mm -hmm. like you know you you could tell me if this is correct or not but i think you know, Jaffe, maybe he had good intentions, right? A lot of people who, you know, are in the system, they do have good intentions. So he was like, okay, you know, I'm working at these big companies. There's a culture of uh, crunch, etc. I'll do my own thing. I will make, I will make the better game. You know, I will improve the industry by being better. He tried to do that. It failed. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he has the opinion that we can't really change the industry. You know, uh, we have to be consumer focused. Do you think that's mm. correct? Like, yeah, that, that, that that's very likely, I think. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, like I, I don't know the, know, know the guy in detail, but certainly, I think that, that makes sense to me. That you know, it's a sense of bitterness towards consumers and a frustration towards consumers. Um, and and you know, like I, I get it, right? Like I've I've worked for companies before, and customers are annoying, right? Like the, the first thing you learn when you work in an industry where you know you're essentially serving customers to some degree. It is like the customer is always right is wrong like that's the, the worst you know that's a marketing slogan you know um and, and customers are like very frustrating and, and of course you know it, there's a sense of entitlement there is definitely a sense of entitlement that exists within some of these communities um and 
I get it's frustrating. But but for me, it's like, well, if you want change, like, what are you going to focus on? Like, I think you've got a better shot of implementing systemic change at the essential point of all this, rather than concerning yourself with trying to change how, you know, millions of consumers operate, you know? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, so, like, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with you. I think, I think a question that really has to be asked, right, because this is a very foundational question, is are customers entitled because they are inherently entitled? Or are customers entitled because we've created a corporate culture that rewards people's entitlements, you know, where corporations will be so overeager to, you know, please their customers, you know, that they will deliberately allow their employees to be degraded, you know, uh, where uh, mm. the value that a customer brings to the store is more than, you know, the value that the store has to the employee. And, you know, I have to wonder if, if you know, the, the, the reason why we're dealing with so many problems of like the way that consumers behave is not because they are inherently that way, but rather because we've created an environment where it's easy to be that way. And so eventually that kind of behavior becomes normalized. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I really, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, you know, this is anecdote, Andy, but speaking from experience <laughs> working for these big corporations is there is this like, you know, unending desire to just endlessly please the customer, whatever they demand, that's it. And, and in fact, I think Cyberpunk um, is 2077 is quite a good example of this in action, right? Hmm. Because, you know, um, it strikes me that they set a date for the release of this game, they couldn't meet it and they pushed it back and they got a, a lot of pushback from, from the, the, you know, consumers about it. And rather than take the executive decision and go, do you know what, we actually need more time on this game. Like it's just a reality that we do. They released it and, you know, on certain platforms, it was in such a poor state that now obviously Sony have retracted um, the game from the PlayStation 4, um, you know, from the PlayStation 4 for the PlayStation 4. And, and you just think like, you know, whilst the consumer obviously is going to have an influence and an impact on you and you're worried about review scores and you're worried about public reception and things like that, it, it, it's like, you know, this is like a, a creation of your design. Like, why Why was the date for release put at this point in the first place? You know, like, what led to that decision being made? Um, and, and then, obviously, like I say, when there's problems, you get this pushback. And if your concern is, is obviously to um, meet the demands of the consumers versus treating your employees well, well, that's when crunch happens, right? Yeah, you know, I <clears throat> one of the arguments that initially that uh, Jaff brings up, you know, firstly... And something that I find to be really unusual is he makes this point like, okay, if there's, you know, don't don't come with him, oh, crunch is the failure of management, you know. Uh, well, firstly, number one, who are we supposed to blame? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, the buck is supposed to stop at like the management, right, if there's a problem. But secondly, how are we supposed to prove that crunch happened because of the management? It's not like... You know, I was watching this. I was, it's not like we know the inner workings of game companies. It's not like they're transparent, you know, to the public. Um, mm. So if there is a problem, if there is crunch, how are we to, you know, intuit other than the fact that, you know, maybe we get lucky and there's a whistleblower who's like, hey, you know, the studio knew, or maybe it blows up like cyberpunk. But like, how are we supposed, it, it, it's kind of almost in a way asking you to do something that's unfalsifiable, right? Because you can't know uh, if crunch happened 100% because of the management, but you can intuit, right? Because you can just like, you know, to, 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 to borrow a phrase, to use the, the Judd logic here, you can use the logic of like being a, a developer and like, okay, well, if you were in charge of this thing, you know, and, uh, you know, you were a manager in this kind of position and you have to make these decisions and you're responsible to your shareholders and it's like da 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 and then the wheels start turning and then eventually you could see, yeah, they probably would crunch the employees, right? Uh, because if they don't, mm -hmm. The company will lose value. The share, the stock price will go down. The shareholders will be unhappy. You know, um, and uh, like that's that's like a big issue because how uh, how else? You know, sure, sure. We can't maybe take him at his word that there is some responsibility to bear for the game buying public. But you know, it's as I you know mentioned it earlier. Is the game buying public the way that it is because we changed and yes. the, or is it the case that the studios realized that they could you know chase more of a buck? that they could get more money out of, you know, the game buying audience. And they slowly but surely, you know, like uh, a very, you know, like, let me ask you this. Do you on your own think that microtransactions would have ever been a good idea? 
Well, no, of course not. Like, <laughs> that's a really good point, right? If, if someone without any knowledge of anything had come to me and said, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to buy a full price game, okay? And then once the game is released, um, there's going to be a constant, endless pressure on you to make extra purchases for, you know, um, a, a skin for your fucking gun, <laughs> right? Like, you'd be like, well, hey, that sounds absolutely ludicrous. Like, what yeah, and, you um, know, you and I were, 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 you know, I remember, like, the days when a game was released, full mm. price, you got everything from the game, and, like, yeah. you could unlock skins for, like, your gun if you were like, hey, you know, can you beat the game in under two hours? Here's a special skin for your gun. And it, it, it was like, oh, you're rewarding play, you're rewarding skill, you know? It's not like... I'm trying to milk you for money. Well, would it, would it surprise you to, to know that one of the reasons why microtransactions started to get popular is not because people were wanting it, but because a company made a business decision, right? Can you, would you care to guess which one it was? I mean, I, I would say, probably, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd guess Activision maybe, but you know, I'm not oh, sure. It's, oh my dear. There's so many logic. now. It's Apple. <laughs> Wait, it's Apple. Yeah, it's Apple. Uh, so originally, um, you know, the, the way the, uh, one of the best explanations for this whole microtransactions thing that I've seen is the Apple iStore originally did not allow people to give games away for free. Uh, so um, if you were a developer making games for the Apple I, iStore uh, or iTunes or the App Store or whatever, whatever it's called, I don't have an Apple, uh, you were in a dilemma, right? Because in, in, back in those days, back in the olden days, kids, Companies would give you a demo of the game for free that you could play to decide if you like the game. Uh, nowadays, you have to pay to get an incomplete game. <laughs> uh. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I mean, you know, I, I remember like there's um, exam really egregious example where you'll go to purchase like a microtransaction and it'll be like, you know, 10 kilobits. And you're like, this, this, this is on the disc already, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, you're paying essentially for a key to unlock it, but it's on the disc already. Like, that's just wild to me. Yeah. So, so what Apple? Um, but, 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 yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so what Apple did oh, was oh. they, um, the, the the way that the policy was structured was that these developers for the games were like, okay, it's really difficult to get people to try our games because they have to spend money on them, right? They have to, they can't, I can't make a demo available of my game, right? So what they ended up doing. Uh, was uh, splitting development. They would make a freemium, they'd make a free version of the game, right? You could just buy it for free. It was a small, compact experience, right? And then they would have the uh, the actual, the full game uh, available. Um, oh, no, the Apple police are coming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, so they'd make the full game available, you know, for like a price. Uh, but then eventually what people realized, uh, developers, because, you know, once you make the changes in the policy, people are kind of going to want to, you know, maximize their utility out of it. They realized that actually they could get away by making one game that is free, quote unquote, but more of the features are unlocked with payments. Apple didn't have a problem with that. It only had a problem with, you know, uh, uh, the price of the, its games and, you know, uh, uh, demos and stuff like that. So... That's kind of where a lot of the microtransaction stuff develops. It's just one company with a huge market dominance deciding to make a decision. You know, they have no idea what the ramifications of that decision are going to be. And, you know, years later down the line, people are paying like $20 for, you know, gun skins. And it, it's just madness. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's wild. It, it is. You know, the, the, more I, the more I dig into just the way that capitalism has wrecked video games... Uh, the more uh, convinced I am that uh, we are kind of maybe going to head for another video game crash. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, that's a that's a topic for another day. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jaffe... Uh, Jaff, <laughs> I keep saying Jaffe. Uh, are you familiar with Hades? Uh, yes, I am. I've not played it, but I, um, yeah, that's... Um, uh, it's just a new game, and it came out from a independent developer, right? Yeah, and, Super Giant. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an indie game. So Jaff makes a, an argument that another you know point that I think is not very valid, and he he's like, okay, well, you know, you can't compare uh, Hades, which is made by like twenty guys, uh, to AAA games. You know, uh, what do you what do you think about that argument? You know, um, why why does a company well, like Supergiant have like unlimited time off, mandatory leave, but a company like Ubisoft, which makes way more money, you know, has crunch? Why why is that the case? Well. The, the thing for me that I, you know, because I, I, I see where he's coming from. He's, he's suggesting that Hades isn't as as a, a technical uh, 
difficulty to put that game together maybe or something like that but the way i see it is if you it work for a big developer or a big publisher like the resources you have available to you are, are enormous right like they're they're far bigger than you would have an indie game company so that that kind of falls flat to me um to be perfectly clear i don't know about what like the release schedule was of hades and how it came to be and and what, what release date was announced whether it was pushed back or anything like that um but but it seems to me like I mean there's a lot of mechanisms you could look at with this, but the simplest route I can think of as to why a big developer would have crunch is because they don't set expectations correctly. Mm-hmm. They maybe want to capitalize on say the Christmas market or a particular yeah. market or a particular time. So they have a Christmas release date. Um and they 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 you know obviously set it too soon. They they can't meet it, that's when crunch happens, right? I, I imagine maybe with Hades, perhaps it wasn't like thought of that way, perhaps they just released it when it was done. I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but so no, no, I, 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 I totally get it. I think, I think Jaffe. I, I agree with you. I think Jaffe is onto at least the kernel of an idea, right? There is a difference between Hades, a top-down, uh, isometric, you know, roguelike, really interesting game, lots of LGBT, you know, uh, representation, good, fun. I like roguelikes. My top five games of the year were basically all roguelikes. And like Activision, you know, Blizzard and, you know, the latest Call of Duty and, and whatever, right? But for me, uh, the idea kind of like, I don't know, it, it, it kind of seems... It, are you familiar with the Mondragon Corporation by any chance? Yes, yeah, the yeah. Um, co-op. The co-op. Yeah. So the fact that the Mondragon Corporation exists... Now, it's not a perfect example of, uh, you know, a business, right? And it definitely has flaws. But the fact that a business that large can exist in a capitalist society like ours tells me that there really is no impediment to making businesses that large, you know? Like, there really is no reason why other businesses of that size could not be co-ops or that we couldn't grow a co-op to that kind of size. For me, uh, the problem with, like, comparing Hades and, uh, you know, Activision or, you know, CD Projekt Red, and also, by the way, I find it really funny that, you know, Cyberpunk 2077 crashed as bad as it did because everyone kind of puts CD Projekt Red on a pedestal, you know? They're the last good game developer or whatever but it turns out no they're not really (laughs) Uh, um, but for me it comes down to incentives right you know capitalism is a system of incentives you know marx was all about what what are the incentives of capitalism and um for me it's in a a system like in in hades uh, sorry in supergiant you know it's a it's a company everyone knows everyone else right to some degree but there's a greater level of interpersonal accountability right uh, it's much harder and there's no like much bigger corporate structure, whereas it's much easier for a manager like three levels above his employees to justify crunching, right? He doesn't have to work with them. He doesn't have to see them, you know, daily. He doesn't interact with them. He has very little connection to them other than the orders that he gives. It's very difficult for, to do that if that person is your coworker or if you're much more, you know, connected to them and the work that you do. So it seems to me that it's the structure of these big businesses that really incentivizes them to crunch because, you know, a smaller business can't really do that in the same way. Sure, you know, it is possible that people who are passionate about making games will crunch themselves. If you've ever read uh, Masters of Doom, then you'll know that, you know, John Romero, John Carmack, those guys, they were definitely crunching themselves, you know, to make Doom. Mm. Uh, But they were doing it uh, in a very different way because they were the owners of the means of production. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, sure. They were the guys who were actually doing that stuff so they could make those decisions to crunch, you know, for themselves. Whereas if you're being told to crunch, right... By your boss, who's like in several floors above you, you you don't have a say in whether or not you want to crunch. You're not choosing to do it, right? Because yeah. uh, I think that's like the big thing for me. Because you can choose to crunch, but more often than not, yeah. the developers don't get to choose. This is what I find a bit frustrating sometimes. Is this this kind of um, this meme of of leftists are like lazy layabouts or whatever? Like I think you know, exerting pressure on yourself and working as hard as you can, or putting more effort in and pushing yourself to achieve more and strive for more is fine if it's a sell you know you're putting on yourself right like i can say to myself right i really need to get something done i'm going to spend you know 10 hours a day for the next week doing this until i get to where i need to be with it like that's fine um but but when you're putting that decision on someone else um you know there's a number of issues with it but one thing in particular i think is you don't understand what someone else's limits are hmm. you know like if someone is, is is struggling with something or has maybe got you know say depression or or they're stressed or whatever whatever the case may be you know there's something else that they've got going on you're not really taking that into account and you're kind of putting your own standards onto someone else you know and and i think like yeah it's it's just you know 
it's wrong on a whole lot of levels, but that in itself, I think, is a major reason why why crunching is so bad. And um, yeah, I totally agree with you as well. Like when you when you're so far removed from someone, you know, you can make a decision about the work that they've got to do. You never have to justify it to them. You never have to look them in the face and tell them they're going to have to work ten hour days or twelve hour days. They're going to sleep overnight, whatever it is. You know, you just sign off on it. And, and that's it. You know, you're in some cases, I would imagine that there's people that make these decisions about um, developers having to go and crunch and they're not even in the office with them. They're at home, <laughs> working normal hours, you know, going, leaving at five or come turn up at nine. And these these developers are desperately trying to get the work they need to be done, um, you know, to, to, to meet a criteria that this person's probably set in the first place. And that was wrong as well. Hmm. So. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've I've read stories of people who have been crunched. Right. You know, they uh Jim Sterling uh, coined the, the phrase, popularized the phrase stress casualty, right? Because like these people are crunching and they, in a way, in a weird way, they actually self-police because a lot of them are professionals. A lot of them do want to do good work. And it's very easy to exploit that desire, right? And it's also easy to exploit yeah. the com- camaraderie they have with other people because you might be detached from, you know, them as the manager, but they're not detached from like the animators, from, you know, the, the developers, you know, the network guys, you know, whoever else. Like if, if, you're t- if you tell like, hey, the animations are behind, we've got to crunch the animation department because if we don't crunch them, then, you know, the coding is going to be behind, et cetera, et cetera. It's like really easy to imagine that. And, you know, this is ultimately, you know, a lot of why I think capitalism ends up being exploitative. Uh, another great example is climate change. Uh, most of the CEOs who make decisions about their company's emissions and all of the, those things don't live in places where the pollution is actually going to hit them. <laughs> so it's very easy to see why they make those decisions because, you know, they're looking at a spreadsheet and they're seeing, well, the spreadsheet's going to say that, like, you know, Puerto Rico is going to have terrible floods or, like, you know... Uh, places in Africa are going to have drought. They don't live in those places. It doesn't matter to them. Um, and it's a very easy decision to make. But I guarantee you that if you put that person, you know, in the place where he had to, where those consequences would affect him, his opinion would change very quickly. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're like a, a collaborative species, right? Like we want to work with one another. And that's kind of bastardized by, by people who would do something like crunch because, um, you know, we want to work with one another, but capitalism has created a system in which, you know, we're, we're kind of like pushed to working super hard to meet this goal so that this product can get released so that consumers are happy. So it gets good reviews so that that then it means the company is enriched and makes more money. And then you get a couple of scraps from the table scraps, you know, pushed down to you, you know, from the, from the master's table. Yeah, totally. And, you know, uh, it's, it, it, I think it sweeps back again to this idea, like who actually drives uh, consumer behavior? Are we, you know, because people don't inherently, like people didn't want cell phones, you know, in the 1600s, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's developing a thing and then pushing it to people without giving them like a say in, you know, how it wants. Like I often, you know, point this out, but like the Luddites, are stereotyped as being like anti-technology haters. No, they weren't. They were against the effects of that technology. You know, they were skilled artisans, professionals. They just didn't want to be replaced because they recognized that, you know, why would a capitalist pay, you know, them like a living wage when they could, you know, pay some kid (laughs) less than a living wage to operate a machine that's probably going to kill him, you know? Uh, Mm. They were not against technology just in in, in a similar kind of way. So, you know, I, I think... To, to sort of summarize, I think, many of the problems of, of Jaff's argument, uh, I think he lives, you know, he's, he's constrained in the capitalist mind prison. You know, for him, I think he, he, grew, he grew up in this industry. Now, granted, I, I don't know how juvenile he actually is. The Twisted Metal franchise is not my example of a fun time. The first God of War, uh, you know, I could see how it would appeal to like a 15-year-old guy, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, you know, I get a lot of flack for this, but I like the new God of War, which is a lot more contemplative, you know, it's a lot more like mature in a way versus the old God of Wars are kind of like, not that I don't think those kinds of games can't be fun. It's just like, it doesn't appeal to me as much. Um, yeah, it's just a muscular guy screaming at monsters and fighting them. Yeah, I've not played it, but from what I understand, that's what it is. But the latest one he's got is his son with him, I believe, and there's more of a story with that. Yeah, yeah, so. uh, God of War, the the new one, uh, which is just called God of War because we can't have names that make sense anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, he's a dad. He has to deal with 
you know, he's not angry. He's not, well, he's not as angry. He has to deal with the consequences of his actions. I think it's much better. But anyway, so like, so, you know, Jaff tried to do his own thing. It didn't end up working. And maybe that's why he soured on the idea of consumers, because, you know, if you're a creative person, you have this creative idea. You know, that's a, another thing, you know, I would like to tell him like, hey, you know, Jaff, capitalism is the reason why your interesting game idea kind of didn't get anywhere, you know, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, a marketplace is not going to reward what's good. It's going to reward what's profitable. And if everyone wants to play looter shooters, sorry, buddy, your interesting game about like art and stuff like that is not going to get, you know, anywhere. Um, certainly not enough to like keep your studio going, you know, but if we lived in a socialist society, you know, maybe, uh, if there is no incentive to, you know, profit from your games, you could just make them and, you know, just release them or whatever. Uh, but that's a, that's a, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think to just build on that though, and this ties into the capitalist realism stuff is, is I, as a, uh, a gamer, I do find it difficult to conceive of what, what that would actually look like. And you start to question yourself when you go down this thought process and you think, why do I like the games that I like? Do mm. I like them because I, I kind of uh, like them and, and that's what I want? Or do I like them because marketing has told me that I need to like them and, and that's what I've, you know, immersed myself into. And, you know, now I'm in this process where a new game comes out that's like the ones that I like already and I'm led to go to that. But but is it marketing in my head? Do, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, no, I I totally understand. Like, I like RTS games, right? But basically, we are way past the era of like mainstream RTS games, right? And whenever I see a RTS game, I'm always like thinking, do I want to play this game because I'm starved for RTSs, or is this just actually an interesting RTS game? You know, and it it, it plays up weird things with your head. You know, trying to think about like another problem is probably just like there's too many. <laughs> you know, there's too many games on Steam because <laughs> Steam yeah. doesn't want to do any curation, uh, and some of them are, are you know rubbish, but some of them are uh, you know good and, and whatever. But I, I do want to circle this back. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the thing that really annoyed me the most, I think, about like uh, Jaffe, Jack. I I don't know why I keep calling him Jaffe. It may be because it's because of uh, Jaffa cakes. Uh, yeah, you know I, I always thought Jaffa Cakes too, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Jaffa Cakes, Jaffy. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, we, I, gr- growing up in, you know, in South Africa, we are very much more British than American. Uh, so I'm much mm. more familiar with Jaffa Cakes than I think most American viewers will be. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, it, it's funny. Uh, you know, I, I, I have more in common, you know, culturally, because, you know, I like tea and biscuits and stuff like that. Uh, then Americans who like, you know, a biscuit is this weird scone, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, um, so the, the big argument that I'm most offended by is really the one that he makes about unions, right? So what mm. did you, what did you think? Cause you know, what did you think about his argument regarding, you know, like video game unions and like why, you know, why, uh, why we can't do them? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think, I think, ugh, w- w- when when I was watching that video, what what struck me is that he is absolutely approaching this from the perspective of someone who's in who is in a leadership position, hmm. um, which is disappointing for me because because it's like you know you're not doing that anymore. Like you don't need to do that. Like you can approach this with all of your knowledge from a much kind of richer position and come at this from a, like an unbiased perspective if you really thought about it for long enough. Um, but no, it's the same. It's the same kind of tired anti-union type rhetoric you know yeah to 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 summarize for the for the viewers at home uh jaffe's argument is that uh we can't unionize uh the video game industry uh because if we did that or tried to do that uh the people who run the companies would just ship the jobs off overseas to somewhere else um and uh you know unions are weak therefore it's there's no point in trying to do them they can't do anything etc etc I think that logic is very circular. <laughs> uh, mm. you know, just because unions are weak now, right? Sure. And, and that means they're kind of ineffectual. But that doesn't mean that trying to build a union movement isn't good, right? Because who got rid of the unions? People didn't get rid of the unions. Capitalists got rid of the unions. <laughs> they got rid yeah. of them because they work. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just have to look to kind of Amazon's efforts um, to, to, to kind of union bust as we speak, you know? Um, they're terrified. These, these big companies, big corporations, are terrified of unions because they know what a union will bring to them. 
Yeah, exactly. And like, let's let's be real here, right? There are there are real material differences between uh, a commodity like, say, for example, steel, and a commodity like a video game, right? If hypothetically, you know, you ship your steel production overseas to a factory somewhere in the third world or the global south, uh, sure, you'll probably get that cheap uh, that uh, steel cheaper because you know the workers will be paid less. They'll be in less safe conditions. It'll have terrible environmental effects. You know, you, you don't have to look at like the history of like Indian industrial accidents and like all the companies are owned by Americans because yeah, it's horrible. But a video game is different. All right, so I want you to, you know, to tell me what you think of this argument, you know, because uh, I've, I've been thinking about this. Well, video games are not just a commodity, right? They have a context that kind of gives them value as well, because they're an experience, right? And one of the reasons why it doesn't really make a lot of sense to think about like, oh, they'll just ship all the, you know, the jobs overseas is because A, they haven't done it, really. Uh, video game production is still largely, you know, dominated by traditional uh, industries in the West. Uh, but B... Uh, gamers in the United States and the UK really probably wouldn't play the majority of the games that were made in another country by different people who don't have their cultural experience, you know? Uh, unfortunately, you know, one of the problems, uh, well, one of the things of globalism is that, like, America exports culture, America doesn't really import culture, you know, in the same kind of way. I can't imagine that most American gamers, you know, would play every single game that they made if that game was made in another country that wasn't made to appeal to them. You know, if like, let's say, for example, game developers in, you know, uh, Bangladesh were making a video game, you know, and they were using Bangladesh as an example, it, it would be very weird to those people. You wouldn't be able to sell a game like that in the United States as easily. Um, yeah, and, and this is this is kind of proven with the, the uh, Japanese video games as well, because although obviously, you know, it's, it's twofold, right? So there is a, a heavy influence um, amongst gamers of like Japanese culture. Um, but on top of that, we know that there's games that are released in Japan that are never released like in the United <laughs> States or, or Western markets because they know it's like, it would, it, would, it would explode people's brains, you know, <laughs> to play that kind of game. So, you know, to that end, yeah, like, um, you know, Japanese Japanese um, video game creators absolutely create games that are going to, you know, appeal to an American audience and have themes that are going to appeal to an American audience. Exactly. Um, yeah. um, there, there is there is some examples of like limited cross cultural, you know, development. Like there are games like Zelda, Mario, arguably Nintendo, really is like the the linchpin of this that are popular in the West, but they are very distinctly Japanese games, right? No one, no one, no one thinks Nintendo is an American company because they sell games in America. Those games are still Japanese, right? And so I would imagine that it would be, for the most part, the same. You know, most places would play games that are developed in and around those kinds of same cultural spaces. You're not really going to ship a game somewhere else to another place because those people will have a different cultural context. They'll make it, you know, maybe your game can be sold. I, I definitely think that we should, you know, play games from all over the world. But I definitely think that this, for the most part, people will play games. It's like, you know, why do people, you know, read books that are primarily by people from, you know, their own, um, you know, their own places and stuff like that? It's kind of because, you know, they understand you. Like, a Japanese person is not really going to understand the intricacies of American culture. Can you imagine if, like, a Japanese person, uh, you know, tried to write a Stephen King novel, like, and said it in Maine, you know, and tried to do all of those things to uh, appropriate the culture? It would make no sense. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and um, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think, like, like, I don't think that's necessarily right either. Like, if yeah. there was like a, a a studio in India that was releasing good games, and you know, even if the cultural context were different, like, you know, I think, I think that could be great. I, in fact, I, there's another example I think that demonstrates this. Right? I don't. Have you ever watched an Indian action movie? Yeah, yeah, uh, all the time. <laughs> I've seen a lot of watch, Bollywood movies. <laughs> yeah, you, you watch them, and you're used to certain cultural cues and cer certain cultural contexts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then when you watch like a, a, an Indian action movie, you're kind of blown away, and it's like this is really weird. Like <laughs> there's action happening, but it's happening in a very exaggerated <laughs> way that I'm not used to, right? Um, and and it's like you know people enjoy those films, but it's more of an oddity sometimes for yeah. people. Like there's there's obviously like a niche interest in it within like say America, but it's not broader. And I think you'd probably have the same problem with like say an Indian video game. Look, um, but also on top of that, like you know you don't really have like the 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 infrastructure that exists currently over there. I think to like do what what Jaff is suggesting. Like I don't understand how that would really work. You know. Yeah. No. I I totally agree with you. Just as a quick example, there is actually a game that I'm. Uh, 
that I think is quite interesting. Uh, it's called, I think, Zero Hour or something like that. It's a it's like a Rainbow Six tactical shooter game, but it's being developed in Bangladesh. And, wow, okay. Uh, you know, what I find interesting about this game is that it, it looks like an American game. So they use, you know, American guns, American, you know, uniform, stuff like that. It isn't a Bangladeshi game. It's being made by people in Bangladesh, but it's not really a Bangladeshi game. You know, they hired, I think, an American guy to be the face of the company, you know, because they're trying to sell to Americans. Um, sure. Whereas, you know, if you were imagining that they were going to make games locally, they'd probably do something different. But just, to, you know, to, to go a little bit more about that, like, you know, Nintendo has a Nintendo America, right? Something that I, I think really, really just speaks to how capitalist realism, you know, Jaff is, is because, like, we could fix this with policy, you know? We could make it, like, a rule that says, you know, to, to use some economic protectionism. If you want to sell a game in a country, in a market like the US or the UK or whatever, you kind of have to have, like, operations in that country, you know? Um, yeah. Some development or something like that. It would be really easy, I think. You know, most... Because who... Which which games company is going to be like, I don't want to sell to the American market, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, they, they'd want to do that. And if they don't, hypothetically, if they don't, well, then we could just build a local game development, you know, system, right? Like, I, I think to, to, to Jaffe, he, uh, Jaff, he, he imagines like, oh, yeah, all the games are just going to go overseas. Uh, all the d game developers are just going to sit on their thumbs and, you know, not do anything. But c come on, like, realistically, who's doing the actual work? Like, the game developers. We can, like, make game companies that are local uh, wherever we are and, like, just have them keep going. And sure, maybe, you know, the, the big companies are going to move to another country. But like like I said, you could just say, hey, you know, you kind of have to operate in this country if you want to have access to this market in much the same way that like China, you know, people make games for the Chinese market. You know, what do they have to do? They have to have operations and deals with China. It's it's that simple. <laughs> and if you don't do that, well, yeah. you don't get access to the market. And if you want access to the market, you know, it's like it's, it's weird to me how we, you know, anti-capitalists can use the logic of capitalism to, you know, just solve the problem <laughs> in a way. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, the, the amount of videos I've watched where a right winger has, has made like anti anti free market arguments and, and they're like an avowed capitalist. And you're like, hang on a sec, you're supposed to be the one that's all about this. Like, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, because I don't like capitalism. But even I can see like, yeah, who would why would EA give up on the US market, you know, just to, to make production cheaper? It doesn't really make it because the thing, the thing is as well. What, what, what? The, you know, inherent in what Jeff is suggesting with that argument as well is is kind of like uh, it would be like gaming sweatshops then, because mm. the idea is you're trying to take advantage of cheaper labor abroad, and you know, like that that would be what you would use, right? Like you'd want you'd, you'd I, I guess you'd have some sort of building set up where you'd like what you'd have all these like Indian programmers there programming away for like ten pence a day or whatever. Oh, it man, is, that sounds like, awful. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and it's like, you know, would would that would that output the best the best work as well? Like, you know, like I think I think if you wanted to have the best possible work done to it, then you'd have to pay them obviously a better a better um wage. And, and the complications that would arise from having to manage development remotely. So, so if you're in America and you're managing a team of developers who are working in, I guess, the equivalent of a sweatshop in India <laughs> and trying to remotely oh, manage their development, like how would that even work? Like surely that would be an absolute nightmare. And, and any savings that you would make would, would be dwarfed by these complexities that would arise. I mean, imagine trying to meet a release date when you're remotely managing, um, you know, a, a, a program sweatshop in India. Which like, is on I a just different time zone. And, uh, yeah, 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 time, yeah, Jesus. Also, you know, you've just got to localize it. Like, localization is not cheap, right? One of the reasons why so many Japanese games are not brought to the American or, you know, uh, Western audience is just because localization is expensive. Like... Imagine you're doing native development in, you know, those people, you know, in, in, in India or China or wherever, they don't speak English, really. They, they speak their local languages. So they're developing a game. It has to go through an entirely separate process, which probably will have to involve English speakers at some point, right? You're still going to have to pay that. You, you know, now you're paying two. <laughs> you're paying two costs. You're paying the cost for, like, a separate localization team, which will have to do a whole bunch of localization, you know, to get this game, you know, ready and, and able. And then also you'll have to pay your developers. It's like... How much re and you know another thing, something that uh, I think you know you pointed out that maybe Jaff was involved in, in crunch is that like a lot of the people who are involved in the crunch, like one of the reasons why the industry is able to get away with this, right, is a there are no unions, right? That's one problem. But b 
the workforce is very, very much pliant towards this kind of thing, right? So what do I mean by that? So if you listen to Jim Sterling, right, what 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 they'll say is that um, a lot of the time people who get into game development are people who like they come out of they're passionate about making games they're gamers themselves so they want to get into the industry they get into it they're naive they're easy to burn out they're easy to you know like replace because there's always more people like that why would a company you know that our companies benefit from that kind of system right why would they you know they'd have to find that that thing again you know in another part of the world right because the the argument for like sweatshops is that you have a cheap pool of replaceable labor well guess what you already do have a cheap relatively cheap pool of replaceable labor <laughs> mm. it, it, it's just it's weird um but uh yeah i, I don't know like it, it it just seems like there are ways that we could deal with this with policy we could you know protectionism developer local have you heard of like uh you know the national endowment of the arts Oh, no, no, what's that? Uh, well, it's it's a program in America where it's like, I think it also in Canada, where you can apply to the government for money to develop your game. And they do that. You know, there are like a number of indie games that get developed because they get funding from the government. Why couldn't we just do that? <laughs> Why couldn't we just yeah. subsidize the games industry? You know, because it's people play games. You could, you know, you could spend that tax money not on bombs. You could, you know, spend it on game development. It, it it just bothers me, you know? Like, what if we applied Jaff's logic to something like slavery? Like, sh- surely, yeah, we could stop slavery if we convinced every single customer who bought products made with slave labor to stop buying those products. But, like, you know, the majority of cotton was produced with slave labor or near-slave labor conditions. Like, if you wanted clothing and you didn't have money, you couldn't buy clothing that wasn't made with, you know, slave cotton. Yeah, well, this this goes back to the classic argument um, that, that's made of, of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, i.e. consumers have, um, you know, very little control over the um, logistics of, of, of the, uh, you know, process of consumerism, you know, like they, they've got very little control, really, you know, it's up to the companies to, to influence and change that. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, we were talking about loot box earlier, right? Well, lots of people don't like loot boxes. How many people, you know, are able to really materially shift co- games that have loot boxes? People still buy them. People still play them. It, it took like mm. a country like Belgium. I'm not sure if you know this, but the Belgian government outlawed loot boxes. They made it illegal. Guess what? <laughs> EA had to take it. They had to take that one lying. They had to take the L, right? Because it turns out that a government can totally force a corporation to do stuff. And... Uh, it, it requires like greater organization of society. I think a big problem, and this is maybe unique a little bit to Jaff, is that he lives in America, which is a country that has, it's like ultra capitalist in a lot of ways where they, most Americans don't think that the government can even do anything good, you know? Uh, so it kind of does make a little bit sense to me that he thinks that like, oh yeah, you know, it's all of you guys, we're all, you know, we, we didn't vote in the right politicians. Well, actually, you know, if you look at it, you know, you know, between gerrymandering, voter suppression, all of that stuff, it turns out that actually, you know, and even then, you know, like, as you pointed out in your video, like, it was a choice between Trump and Biden, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a choice yeah. between Trump and Bernie. We, we have to do, you know, we have to do more, we have to be able to be willing to, you know, advocate for more. He has a big platform. Why doesn't he advocate, you know, for workers unions? He seems to be against the idea because, you know, he thinks they can't do anything, but maybe they can't do anything because people aren't talking about them more often. And he has a bigger platform than I do, you know? So, like... Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I say, I, I just think he's coming to the... With, in a very narrow perspective as someone who used to be, uh, like, a manager. You know, he used to be a very senior figure within the industry, within his, his, his organization. So, you know, he, he's not really approaching it with a with an unbiased mind or an unbiased perspective. Um, which, like I say, it's a shame. You know, he, he could have done a really good video and, and, and spoken about these various issues. But, you know, yeah. again, it's just the same old anti-union rhetoric. Which, <laughs> there, are, uh, you know, really yeah, there are lots of people in the games industry who are upset, you know, about the games industry. We, we need only look at, like, all the people who were abused at Ubisoft, right? Mm. Uh, but, like, those people are, maybe they're capable of recognizing that the problems of Ubisoft are not because the customers of Ubisoft are terrible people. Maybe some of them are, I don't know. I don't really care. Because if we're caring about trying to do things, you know, uh, if we're, we're caring about pragmatism, about trying to get things done, like, you know, I, I saw an, another video of yours, you know, about veganism or vegetarianism or something to that effect. It's like, we're never really going to be able to shame or convince individuals to, like, give up meat eating. We have to actually, like, give people an alternative like you know if you give if you give people a choice 
between something convenient and something ethical, they'll probably choose the convenient option because it's convenient. So like if the convenient option was the ethical option, problem solved, you know, like if more yeah. food was available as, you know, vegetarian alternatives, if people had more time to cook, you know, they didn't live in food deserts, etc., etc., then probably it would be much easier. You'd, you'd, I'd expect to see more you know, vegetarians or vegans or whatever than trying to like get each individual person to change their you know eating habits you know on their own. Because like if you don't have support, you, you can't do it. You need you need support from society in order to change your you know your habits. At least most people do. You know you, you get those people who are like really I don't know uh, principled or really like dedicated, and they can do those changes. But that's not going to be everyone. And uh, no, of course. We need to care about more people than just, you know, individuals. And it's the same is true for gamers, right? That's why I have this podcast. I want gamers to realize that we can advocate for better things, for different things. But we also have to advocate for them within, you know, the broader structures of society. We can't just buy better games, right? Because there's never going to you're never going to convince, like loot boxes, right? You're never going to convince everybody to stop buying loot boxes. Because there will be some people who will buy them, right? And... All it takes is a small percentage of people to justify the expenditure for the company to do that. And that's a losing proposition every time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I am critical of loot boxes and, and I hate that, that sort of aspect of it. But, you know, I still buy my, um, you know, uh, battle pass for Apex, my Caesar pass for Apex every <laughs> uh, every time, you know. And, and it's because, you know, I'm attracted by the marketing and I'm like, OK, skin looks cool. OK, I'll get the Caesar pass and work through it, you know um so, so so yeah even if you're critical like you still may end up engaging with these these systems and i've you know bought other um like loot boxes in the past in my time um but 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 yeah you know and the thing is it's like the problem we've got is again it's about the incentives right like hmm. these publishers and these developers like they're not going to be you can't the incentive is to continue to do it because they're making so much money from doing it right yeah. so so it's like how do you change that incentive there and then i think if you can't incentivize these companies to behave better, it's like you say, you have to regulate them to behave better, as happened in Belgium. Yeah, and, they, and I, I genuinely think that we could actually regulate them and that they, they would change. Because, you know, for all the talk that big companies, EA, Ubisoft, CD Projekt Red have, they will fold if a government is like, hey, we're not going to allow you to do this here and they'll lose access to that market. It's just a matter of building a movement that can affect that change. And unfortunately for us, that's going to take a while. <laughs> you know, so we, yeah. we make every change, we make every step forward that we can. And ultimately, you know, I guess we just have to hope that it's enough. I think ultimately, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say before I give you the final word, I, I feel like pessimism is what drives this. And pessimism is not an effective ideology, right? It doesn't do anything, really. Uh, and capitalist realism is just pessimism. It's just pessimism as a political ideology. Uh, mm. And, uh, yep, go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I, th I think you're right. And I think that the reality is, I don't think Biden's a gamer. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if he's putting, <laughs> putting many hours into Call of Duty or whatever, you know. So I think at the moment, um, for a lot of people as well, you know, focus on the gaming industry is, is probably going to take a bit of a backseat. There's yep. a lot of problems in America. Yeah. Uh, which is very no. We 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 gotta wait uh, for the AOC presidency because you know she plays lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when AOC is president, maybe then we can sort the gaming industry out. But until then, you know, I think I think it's just about um, you know enjoy what you enjoy. Um, if you are interested in making a change, um, the first step to do that to building something bigger is to look to your local area and and see what there is around you, see what organisations yeah. are doing. Is there something you can do to help your neighbor? You know, something as that. So, try to, you know, yeah, try, I always advocate, try to make the, you know, the decisions that you can make. But ultimately, you know, uh, we've got to wait for, we've got to advocate for, on a wider scale. Um, you know, you, when it comes to specifically gamers, if you, if you know, don't necessarily feel guilty about the games that you buy. Try to always, you know, critically engage with them. If you don't want to buy them, by all means, don't buy them. Um, yeah. But recognize that you're not going to stop the industry from being terrible by trying to make everyone not, you know, by by trying to basically bully people into not playing those games because they will still play those games. You yeah. boycotts in, in the games industry are completely ineffectual. <laughs> uh, advocate, you know, help, you know, support unions. Uh, uh, encourage your uni uh, your game developers to unionize, um, and uh, you know. Uh, just do what you can, guys. Uh, we're socialism. This is a fight for the long haul, and um, I guess uh, we all gotta level up. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so uh, this has been another episode of Bite Marks. Um, uh, 
Chud Logic, please plug yourself. Okay, cool. So um, I'm Chud Logic. You can find me um, by Googling Chud Logic. Go to YouTube, type in Chud Logic. If you'd rather check out one of my Twitch streams, um, go on to uh, twitch.tv forward slash Chud Logic. Um, and also, I've been banned twice from Twitter now. However, <laughs> my producer is on Twitter as um, at Irrational Chad. So you can check me out for hot takes um, via my producer, uh, obviously, on uh, on Twitter. Um, in terms of my content, uh, I talk about, sometimes I'll pick up a gaming story if it's of interest to me, talk about technology, talk about um, big tech, uh, talk about uh, social media, um, and uh, things like that. So yeah, come and check my stuff out. I will, and, uh, uh, hope to see you. I will put a link to your, I'll just, I'll put a link to all your stuff in the description of the, the video. Uh, so you can you can check out Chad Logic. I would like us to do a like a, a YouTube thing where like all the smaller leftist guys maybe come together and play like Among Us or something. I think that would be pretty fun. Yeah, uh, that sounds good. <laughs> you know, just as a way of building solidarity between smaller you know leftist creators. Uh, you know, because we're we're not all contrapoints. We're not all Vosh. We're not all Hassan. Uh, we we got to do what we can. But uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, stay safe, uh, wear your masks, take your vaccines, and uh, be well.